I love it when men sing like that. That's excellent. Thank you so very much. All right, before we get started, if there's any children left for Children's Church, follow Brother Pastor Bloom out the door here. Any children left? Here comes some. Here comes some more. Y'all see their smiles when they come up here. You know, I, today I was reminded how important the countenance is of a believer. Some Christians look miserable. Some Christians look like, you know, uh, death warmed over. They just are not happy at all. But today, uh, we'll not mention who it was, but my wife and I took a church visitor out to lunch today. And this person is not saved. He's seeking, seeking the Lord. And basically, he said what drew him to the church, what drew him to the Lord, he says it was the smile on one of our church members' face. He said, I could tell that person has something I don't have, and I want it. My friend, your smile makes a big difference. Now, no smile wins a person to Christ. It's the gospel that does that. But basically, the smile is a person that attends our church. God used it to draw this person to himself. So I hope that you walk around smiling. Don't walk around like a rain cloud over here. There are some people that look like misery in the flesh. And it's sad. Why would anybody want what you got if you look like that? My friend, people all look at you and say, I don't know what that person has, but I want it. And so I encourage you to smile. Uh, just a quick word about these upcoming uh, Wednesday night classes. I encourage you to consider which one to go to. We have one on parenting, helping parents with young children called Shepherding the Child's Heart. Then we have one on what the Bible teaches about angels. There's so much misunderstanding about angels. Most people get their theology on angels from television and movies. They do not know what the Bible says. Also, we have Financial Peace University, a Dave Ramsey course, on finance. If you're struggling with finances, you're in debt, I strongly encourage you to take this class. And then there's one on Christian evidences, knowing why we believe, what we believe, and things about the Lord. If you would check, check out the definition or the description of each one of those classes and consider to join us on September the 7th, Wednesday night, this will be about a 13-week class, and so it's not a class forever, and so we encourage you to consider joining us for one of those classes on Wednesday nights. If you did not get a handout tonight, is any of those left, Brother Phil? None left. Praise the Lord. Okay. <laughs> All right. Uh, tonight I want to begin a series of messages called, basically, it's 13 surprising principles of the Christian life. And they're entitled, It's Not What You Think. It's not what you think. Isaiah, verse we read together, in chapter 55, God says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, saith the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. God doesn't think the way you think, and neither do we think the way he thinks. From this verse, we can learn a couple of things. First of all, our, view, our point of view is always different from God's point of view. 
our point of view is always different from God's point of view. What we assume is often different when the Bible tells us is true. Because his thoughts are not our thoughts. His ways are not our ways. In this series of messages, we're going to look at 13 biblical truths that run contrary to our normal way of thinking. Here's some examples. We think trials only bring pain. God says they bring growth. We think the way to get is to keep. God says the way to receive is to give. We think the greatest person has the highest position. God says the greatest person has the lowest position of a servant. We think that when someone hurts us, we should get even. God said when someone hurts us, we should bless them. We think God uses only great or important people. God says he uses insignificant people. These are just a few of many we're going to cover in our series here on It's Not What You Think. Here's what we're going to cover. I believe it will be up on the screen. The 13 biblical uh, principles we're going to cover in this series. Principle number one, which we're going to cover tonight, is called trust and obey. Principle number two, death brings life. Number three, count trials a joy. Number four, Give, and it shall be given. Number five, the greatest is the servant. Number six, love your enemies. Number seven, bless them that curse you. Number eight, biblical, excuse me, overcome evil with good. Principle number nine, good can come out from bad. Number 10, strength comes through weakness. Number 11, the way up is down. Number 12, we ought to rather to forgive. And number 13, God uses nobodies. These we're going to cover in the next uh, 13 weeks that we're together, at least when I'm preaching on Sunday nights. It's almost in every area of life, our natural thoughts run contrary to what Scripture says. In fact, an essential component in the process of Christian growth is having our minds renewed or transformed. Many of you know uh, Romans 12, 2. Be not conformed to this world, but be ye what? How? By the renewing of your minds. So, so much of the Christian life is adopting and making our thoughts the way God thinks. Because his thoughts are not our thoughts. So today we're going to look at the first principle called trust and obey. This principle we'll look at this evening is when we cannot understand God's plan... We need to walk by faith. We should simply trust and obey. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 7 says, We walk by faith and not by what? Sight. And, when God, and so when it comes to Christian life, many times God will tell us something that doesn't make sense to us. We don't understand. The Bible says, Without faith, it's what? Impossible to please him. For he that cometh to God must believe that he is and then he's a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. So let's look at tonight, look at three biblical characters who had to trust and obey. That they gave the instructions God gave them, they didn't understand. But they had to trust the Lord and obey. We're going to look at one from the Old Testament called Naaman. In the New Testament, the disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ... And also another person who tells a lady by the name of Martha. 
So if you would turn me to 2 Kings, please. 2 Kings in chapter 5. 2 Kings chapter 5. We'll look at a story about a man named Naaman. 2 Kings chapter 5. Let's read this account together. You follow along me silently as I read out loud. 2 Kings chapter 5, if you would please. We're going to look at, first of all, Naaman's need. Naaman's need. In chapter 5, verse 1, it says, Now Naaman, captain of the host of the king of Syria, was a great man with his master, and honorable because by him the Lord had given deliverance unto Syria. He was also a mighty man in valor, but he was a leper. And the Syrians had gone out by companies and had brought away captives out of the land of Israel, a little maid, and she waited on Naaman's wife. Verse 3, and she said unto her mistress, Would God, my Lord, were with the prophet that is in Samaria, for he would recover from his leprosy. And one went in and told his Lord, saying, Thus and thus said the maid that is in the land of Israel. Verse 5, and the king of Syria said, Go to, go, and I will send a letter unto the king of Israel. And he departed and took with him ten thousand... Ten talents of silver, and six thousand pieces of gold, and ten changes of raiment. And he brought the letter to the king of Israel, saying, Now, uh, when the letter is come unto thee, behold, I have therewith sent Naaman my servant to thee, that he may mayest recover from his leprosy. And it came to pass when the king of Israel had read the letter, that he rent his clothes, and said, Am I God to and to kill and to make alive, that this man doth send me to, to recover a man from his, of his leprosy. Wherefore, consider, I pray you, and see how he seeketh a quarrel against me. And it was so when Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had rent his clothes, he sent to the king, saying, Wherefore hast thou rent thy clothes? Let him now come to me, and he shall know that there's a prophet in Israel. So Naaman came with his horses and is with his chariot and stood at the door of the house of Elisha. And Elisha sent a messenger unto him, saying, Go, wash in the Jordan seven times, and thy flesh shall come unto thee, and thou shalt be clean. But Naaman was wroth and went away and said, Behold, I thought he would surely come out unto me, Stand and call upon the name of the Lord his God. Strike his hand over the place and recover the leper. Said, Are not Abana and Farpar, rivers of Damascus, better than the waters of Israel? May I not wash and thou may be clean? So he turned and went away in a rage. And his servants came near and spake unto him and said, My father, if the prophet had bid thee to do some great thing, Wouldst thou not have done it? How much rather then, when he saith unto thee, Wash and be clean. Then when he down, dipped himself seven times in the Jordan, according to the saying of the man of God, and his flesh came again like unto the flesh of a little child, and he was what? Clean. Now first of all, who was this man Naaman? Back up in verse 1, let's look at who this man was. It says again in verse 1, Now Naaman, captain of the host of the king of Syria, 
was a great man with his master and honorable because by him the Lord had given deliverance unto Assyria. He was also a mighty man in valor, but he was a leper. Notice four phrases that describe the importance of this man, Naaman. First of all, he was the supreme commander of the army of Syria, indicated by the term captain. It is used as the army's highest ranking officer. Number two, he was a great man, a man of high social standing and prominence. Number three, it said he was an honorable man in the eyes of his master, a man highly regarded by the king of Syria because of his military victories he had won. Number four, he was a mighty man of valor, a term used in the Old Testament for both a man of great wealth and a courageous warrior. So that's who Naaman was. Now keep that in mind. Let me give you three things about Naaman. I hope you write them down in the, in the insert that you got or the handout. First of all, Naaman thought he could purchase his salvation. He thought he could purchase deliverance from his leprosy. Now, the salvation I'm talking about is not spiritual salvation. I'm not going to heaven, but being saved from leprosy. Leprosy was a horrible disease. I've read somewhere that leprosy, the people died from this. Literally, their flesh would rot on their bodies. The stench was unbelievable. They had to cover themselves and stand afar off because of leprosy. There was nothing uncommon for the ears, or many times parts of the nose, literally to fall off their bodies because of rotting. It was a horrible disease. And this man here of great stature, of great importance, had leprosy. But he thought he could purchase healing from that. Look again in verse 5. When he came, in verse 5, the king of Syria said, go to, go, to, go, and I will send a letter unto the king of Israel. And notice here it says, and he departed and took with him 10 talents of silver and 6,000 pieces of gold and 10 changes of raiment. Why did he bring that? He wanted to purchase healing. He heard there was a prophet in Israel that can heal, and he wanted to pay for that. So he, he thought he could purchase his healing, his salvation, uh, with money. And by the way, that was a lot of money he brought with him. Letter B. His pride almost kept him from being saved, saved from uh, this leprosy. His pride almost kept him from being saved. Look again down in verse 9, please. So Naaman came with his horses and his chariot and stood at the door of the house of Elisha. He came with a huge entourage. There could have been 50, could have been hundreds of horses. This man was very prominent, very important. And he comes up to the house of Elisha with a great amount of uh, people there with the horses and his chariot. In verse 10, And Elisha sent a messenger unto him, saying, Go and wash in Jordan seven times, and thy flesh shall come unto thee, again to thee, and thou shalt be clean. And how did Naaman respond? Verse 11. Naaman was what? Wroth. That means he was extremely angry. And he went away saying, Behold, I thought he would surely come out to, unto me and stand and call upon the name of the Lord his God and strike his hand in, over the place and recover. Here's a man of great importance, come with a great entourage. He come to this house, the prophet Elisha. And what did Elisha do? He didn't bother coming out. He just sent his own servant. You go out there and tell him what he needs to do and just uh, 
dipped himself seven times in the Jordan River. He thought that such a man of importance ought to be of great importance. Surely the prophet himself had come out. He didn't come out. Not, not at all. And basically what he was saying here, that he uh, uh, just basically told him, you need to just wash. And so uh, uh, Naaman become very angry. He said, surely he'd come out. I thought he'd call upon the Lord and lay his hand upon me. That basically he'd respond in the way of the kind of person he was. Some big fanfare of healing. And all his people would see, here he calls upon God, lays it, much like faith healers are on TV today, lay his hand upon him and cry out to his God, and, and, and they would heal him. But basically, he said, no, he didn't come out at all. He showed no importance to this man, just sent his own servant out there to him, told him what to do. And, of course, Naaman basically got very, very angry because that, and left and so basically, his pride almost kept him from being saved from that. Letter C. He rejected God's simple way of salvation. He rejected God's simple way of salvation. Again, I'm talking about going to heaven, talking about salvation from death of this horrible disease of leprosy. He thought he could purchase his salvation. His pride almost kept him from being saved. And his, he rejected God's simple uh, way of salvation. And notice in verse 12, the response was, and he said, are not Abana and Parfar, Farpar, excuse me, the rivers of Damascus better than all the waters of Israel? May I wash in them and be clean. So he turned and went away in a rage. By the way, the Jordan River was very, was very dirty. And so he said, I know there's waters, rivers in my area that are pure and clean. Surely I can go to them and be cleaned. Why should I go dip myself in this filthy river and, and be cleaned? So he went away in a rage. So again, he thought he could purchase his salvation. His pride almost kept him from being saved. And he rejected God's simple way of salvation. But notice what he had to do was trust and obey. Look in verse 13. And his servants came near and spake unto him and said, My father, if the prophet had bid thee to do a great thing, wouldst thou not have done it? How much rather then would he say to thee, Wash and be clean? In other words, if he told you to do something great because it's just a great person, would you not have done it? And thought was yes. But he told you to do something as simple as wash and be clean. And of course, Naaman Amidst his anger and his wrath, he responded right. He trusted and obeyed. Look in verse 14. Then went he down and dipped himself seven times in the Jordan, according to the saying of the man of God, and his flesh came again like the flesh of a little child and was what? Not only was he cleansed from his leprosy, his skin was like that of a little child. Have you, have you ever, I'm sure you have, Seeing the skin of a child. I mean, just as smooth and nice. So he went from the skin without any leprosy to that of a child. Why? Because he trusted and obeyed. The instruction he got from the prophet didn't make sense. It was not, he didn't like it. It was not what it should have been for a person of his statue. But he had the good sense to trust and obey. 
In fact, do not turn there. This is just a little sidelight for you. Naaman was the only leper cleaned by Elisha. In Luke 4, 27, Jesus said, Many lepers were in Israel in the time of Elisha, the prophet, and none of them was cleansed, saving Naaman the Syrian. He's the only one that was cleansed of his leprosy. So we saw, number one, Naaman's need. Number two, now look at the disciples' dilemma. The disciples' dilemma. Go with me now to the book of John, please. The disciples' dilemma. John chapter 6. You remember the story, the feeding of the 5,000? John chapter 6. You follow along with me as I read this account, then I'm going to draw some truths from this too. John chapter 6. Look with me in verse 1. John 6, verse 1. After these things, Jesus went over to the Sea of Galilee, which is in the Sea of Tiberias, and a great multitude followed him, because they saw his miracles, which he had did on them that were diseased. Jesus went up to the mountain, and there he sat with his disciples. And the Passover the feast was, of the Jews was nigh. When Jesus lifted up his eyes, he saw a great company Come unto him, and he said unto Philip, When shall we buy bread that these may eat? And this he said to what? To prove, to test him. For he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered him, Two hundred penny worth of bread is not sufficient for them, that every one of them may take and eat a little. One of the disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, saith unto him, there is a lad here that hath five barley loaves and two fishes. But what are they are among so many? Jesus said, Make the men sit down. Now there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down, the number about 5,000. Jesus took the loaves, and when given thanks, he distributed to the disciples, and the disciples to them that were sat down, and likewise of the fishes, much they, as they would. And when they were filled, he gathered unto the disciples, he said unto the disciples, gather up the fragments that remain, that nothing be lost. Therefore they gathered them together and filled twelve baskets with the fragments of the five barley loaves, which remained over and above them that had eaten. Let me give you some points about this. I hope you write it down. We're going to see the disciples' unbelief. The Lord instructed them to do something. They had all kinds of excuses. First of all, they're, they're they said there are too many people to feed. There are too many people to feed. Remember, Jesus asked this one disciple, it says, uh, when shall we buy bread that they may eat? How many people were there? You said 5,000. Now, when you read an account in the Bible, it's always important to read all the other accounts. This is also in Matthew and Mark. But... It said there in verse 10, it said, Jesus said, make the men sit down. Now there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down and the number at about 5,000. But notice what, I'll read it to you, in Matthew's account, 14 verse 21, and they had eaten about 5,000 men beside the women and what? Children. There could have been easily 10,000 or 15,000 people there. They counted only the men. There were 5,000 men, but had their wives and children. 
And generally, the Jewish people had a lot of children. There could be easily 10 to 15,000. And so, to the disciples' uh, perception, there's too many people to feed. Next, to feed so many will cost more than we have. To feed so many will cost more than we have. It says in verse 7, Philip answered him, 200 penny worth of bread is not sufficient for them, that every one of them may take a little. Now, a penny worth was a Roman denarius. It was the money for a day's worth of labor. And this was eight months of uh, money for uh, uh, wages for labor. Though he didn't have this. He was just calculating. It would take eight months worth of uh, wages to feed this many people. And if we did, they'd only get a little. So what is he saying? Basically, there's too many people to feed. And to feed so many would cost more than we have. Letter C. The third thing expressed the disciples' unbelief. The food we have is not enough. The food we have is not enough. It doesn't bear this out in this account given in the book of John. But the book of Mark, it said Jesus sent his disciples out among the people and asked them what food they had. And they come back with one report in verse 9. There is a lad here which hath five barley loaves and two small fishes. But what are they among so many? Otherwise, what we found is not enough. So again, there's too many people to feed. To feed so many will cost more than we have, and the food we have is not enough. So what did the disciples have to do? They had to trust and obey. In verse 10, he tells them to do something, which didn't make sense. All they had, remember there could be ten to 15,000 people there. They had five loaves of bread and two small fishes. In verse 10, Jesus said, make the men sit down. Now there was much grass in the place. Verse 11, Jesus took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed to the disciples, and the disciples to them that were set down. So basically, begin to spread. Now how about you? And you, when you get started, you said, this is not going to be enough. I mean, this is not enough to maybe to feed two or three people, not 10 to 15,000. But basically, it goes on, everybody got as much as they wanted to the point they were all full and there was plenty left over. Look at it again in verse 11. He distributed to the disciples, the disciples to them that were set down, and likewise of the fishes as much as they what? Uh, it was everybody got as much as they wanted. Then it says in verse 12, when they were what? Full. Not only get much as they want, they were all full. And he said, and the disciples gathered up the fragments that remained, and there's nothing to be lost. Verse 13, therefore they gathered them together and filled 12 baskets with the fragments of the five barley loaves, and which remained over and above unto them that eaten. Here's a question for you. What do you think they did with the, the 12 baskets? I, exactly. I think they gave it to the little boy. Because he gave all that he had, five loaves of fishes, and five loaves of bread and two fishes. I, I, listen, I think. I think he said, give it to him. And so the Lord blesses giving. But again... That what the Lord instructed them to do didn't make sense. How are you going to feed so many people with five loaves of bread and two fishes? They had to what? 
trust, and obey. Number one, we saw Naaman's need. We saw the disciples' dilemma. Number three, now look at Martha's miracle. Martha's miracle. Go now to John 11, please. Martha's miracle. John 11, please. Just a couple books over. Not a couple books, a couple pages. Now, this is the story of the raising of Lazarus. I want you to notice this. First of all, look in John 11. Look in verse 1, please. John 11. I like to read through this account, and we'll come back and get some, gleam some truths from this. John 11. Would please look in verse 1. Now, a certain man was sick named Lazarus of Bethany, a town of Mary and his sister Martha. It was that Mary that anointed the Lord with anointment, wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was sick. Therefore his sister sent unto him, and saying, Lord, behold, he whom thou lovest is sick. Verse 4. And when Jesus heard that, he said, This sickness is not unto death, but for the glory of God, that the Son of God might be glorified thereby. Now, Jesus loved Martha and the sister Lazarus. But verse 6, when he heard, therefore, that he was sick, what did he do? He ran right away to go heal him. No, he abode two days still in the same place where he was. Now, skip down to verse 17, please. Then when Jesus came, he found him that had lain in the grave for four days. So basically, the sister sent him and said, Jesus, the man you love, Lazarus, is sick. And no doubt, they're thinking he's going to come running to heal him. What did he do? He hung around a couple more days. And when he got there, Lazarus had been dead four days. So it must have been two more days he hung around. It took two days to get there. So when he got there, Lazarus was dead. He was dead for four days. Verse 18. Now Bethany was nigh unto Jerusalem, about 15 furlongs off. Many of the Jews came to Martha and Mary to comfort them concerning their brother. Then Martha, as soon as she heard that Jesus was coming, went and met him, and Mary sat still in the house. Then said Martha unto Jesus, Lord, if thou hast been here, my brother had not died. But I know that even now, whatsoever thou wilt ask of God, God will give it thee. Verse 23. Jesus saith unto her, Thy brother shall rise again. Martha said unto him, I know that he shall rise again in the resurrection of the last day. Now skip to verse 38. Jesus therefore, again groaning in himself, cometh to the grave. It was a cave and a stone laid upon it. Verse 39. Jesus said, Take away the stone. Martha, sister of him that is dead, saith unto him, Lord, by this time he stinketh, for he hath been uh, dead four days. Verse 40. Jesus saith unto him, Said not I unto thee that thou wouldest believe thou should see the glory of God? Then they took away the stone from the place where he was dead. Uh, the dead was laid. And Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank thee that thou hast heard me. I knew thou hast heard me always, but because the people which stand by, I said it, that they may believe that thou hast sent me. Verse 43, And when he thus had spoken, he cried with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. 
And he that was dead came forth, bound hand and foot with grave clothes. His face was bound about with a napkin. Jesus said to them, loose him and what? Let him go. Let me give you some tidbits, of some little truths here. First of all, Jesus was told ahead of time he was sick. And remember, how did Jesus respond? He didn't do anything. <laughs> he just stayed there. And of course, he did it. Because he said, verse 6, when he had heard, therefore, he's sick, he abode two days still in the same place. But notice, Martha could not understand why he waited. It said in verse 21, Martha could not understand why Jesus waited to come. Then verse 21, then Martha said, Jesus, Lord, if thou hast been here, my brother had not what? Basically, you know, it's your fault. If you'd come, he'd been alive today. My brother had not died if, if you'd come. In fact, others question his delay. Look in verse 37. And some of them said, Could not this man which had opened the eyes of the blind have caused that even this man should not have what? Basically, why did he linger? Why did he stick around? So Martha could not understand why Jesus waited to come. But let it be, his delay was to bring glory to God. His delay was to bring glory to God. In verse 4, when Jesus heard that he, that he said, the sickness is not unto death, but for the what? Glory of God. But Martha, let her see, Martha responded with misunderstanding. Martha responded to both of these things, Jesus structured her with misunderstanding twice. The first time, Remember, Martha said, Lord, if you've been here, he had not died. And Jesus said in her verse 23, thy brother shall what? Rise again. Interesting. The word again is not in the original. Thy brother shall rise. He's going to come out of the grave. And notice how she responded. She responded with misunderstanding, thinking he was thinking theologically. Martha said in verse 24, I know that he shall rise again in the resurrection of the last day. Basically, have you ever been to a funeral service and someone lost a loved one? Maybe you told them, said, isn't it wonderful you're going to see them again one day? That's exactly what Christ, he, she thought Christ was saying. I know he's going to rise again, the resurrection last day. Now, the Old Testament saints will be resurrected after the tribulation before the millennium. She was from that time. She misunderstood. Christ said he's coming out of the grave. He said, I know he will one day, but it's going to be future. But a second time she misunderstood, verse 38. Jesus, therefore, again, groaning in himself, coming to the grave. It was a cave and a stone laid upon it. Verse 39, Jesus said, take away the stone. How did Martha respond? He said, Lord, by this time, he stinks. Because <laughs> he'd been dead for four days. Hey, let me give you a little tidbit here. When does a body begin to decay? Four days. How do we know that? How many days was Christ dead? Three, and the Bible said he saw no decay. It was the fourth day. So basically, Christ said, move the stone. And Martha said, wait a minute. Do you sure you want to do that? He stinks. He's been dead that long. She misunderstood what was going on. He already said he's going to rise. And so she misunderstood. What did Martha have to do? Trust and obey. Then it went on to say, that they rolled away the stone, 
the servants did that. They had to have Martha's permission to do so. And, of course, um, rolled away the stone, and Jesus said, Lazarus, what? Come forth. And he came forth, bound hand and foot, and said, loose him and let him go. In other words, Martha had to trust and obey. So let's wrap this up tonight. The conclusion is this. In these three stories, we see a repeated pattern. Number one, a person had a need. Naaman's need was healing from leprosy. The disciples' need was food for the uh, people that was there were hungry. And Martha's need was her brother had died. Number two, God gives instruction. He gave instruction to Naaman how to be healed. He gave instructions to the disciples how to feed the the 5,000. He gave instruction to Martha how the uh, brother would come out of the grave. Number three, the person struggles with those instructions. Did Naaman struggle? He almost missed out on it. The disciples struggle. Yes, we don't have enough food for everybody. And, of course, did Martha struggle? Yes. Number four, the person chooses to trust and obey. The person chooses to trust and obey. So, number one, a person has a need. God gives instruction. The person struggles with those instructions. The person chooses to trust and obey. And number five, God works in ways he could not have imagined. God works in ways the person could not have imagined. So basically, Naaman's need was met. The disciples' dilemma was solved. And Martha experienced a miracle. So let's close with this. Christian, what is it God is prompting you to do by his spirit that you are resisting? That you may not understand? That maybe you felt led of the Lord to do something and you don't understand why me? My friend, God makes no mistakes. Many times we may struggle with the instruction God gives us, but what should our response be? To trust and obey. What is it that God is instructing you to do, led by the Spirit of God to do something that you're resisting because you don't understand? Remember, God's ways are not our ways. His thoughts are what? Not our thoughts. So if I want to maybe experience what these men experience, what Martha experienced, what should we do? Write it down. Never forget it. Trust and obey. Close your Bibles, please. We began talking about what it said that um, our thoughts are not God's thoughts. And the things that we assume most of the time are contrary to what Scripture teaches. Let me give you an example of that and we'll close tonight. What is the common thought people assume on how to get to heaven? Good works. Being good. That's the common assumption by people today. If I'm going to get to heaven, I've got to be good. And so they believe that it's their behavior, their righteous acts, that will earn God's favor and merit the way to heaven. Proverbs says, there's a way that seemeth right unto man, but the end thereof are the ways of death. And to the common man today, the right way to heaven is by my works. If I'm going to make it, I've got to be good. And what is sad, so many churches teach that. So many churches teach that salvation is by the sacraments of the church, by things you do in your church, by your service. That's the way it seems right to man, but the end there are the ways of death. 
And what these people need to do is forget what man says and believe what, what God says. And so, again, I want to encourage you in every situation of life, you may not understand what God is saying or doing. It doesn't make sense to you. Just, my friend, simply trust and obey. Let's bow together, please. As our heads are bowed and eyes are closed, tonight my message was to those of you that know Christ, encourage you to do the simple thing that allowed a man dying of leprosy to be healed, allowed those who had shortage of food to feed over 10,000 people, and allowed a, a woman that was grieving over her brother who died to see him again. In each case, they received instruction from the Lord that it makes sense, but they trusted what God said and obeyed. Christian, what is it God's instructing you to do? What is it that the Spirit of God's prompting you to do that you're resisting because it doesn't make sense? And I pray that you might respond in the same way. Trust the Lord and do what he says. Father in heaven, thank you for your word. Thank you, Lord, that we can trust you. Our part is to obey what you say. Though we do not understand, the Bible says, trust the Lord with all thy heart. Lean not unto thy own understanding, but all thy ways acknowledge you and you shall direct our paths. May that be said of each one of us in our walk with you. For us in Christ's name, amen.